Ron and Anian. I think one of the problems with auto repair today is it's so unrewarding. You you walk up to the car and it's like fixing a computer. The car doctor. You download software, you hit a couple of buttons, you play with the mouse, enter this, buy a subscription, flash, the neurons, protons, and electrons all kind of flow in the same direction, and zip, the car is fixed. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, come on in. Sit down. Ron and Amy and the Car Doctor at your service. 855-560-9900. That's the Car Doctor's 24-7 number. 855-560-9900. Give us a call. If we are not on the air, we've got it set up so there's a messaging service there. You can call 855-560-9900 and leave a message. Fast Harry, our executive producer, will call you back and put you in the lineup for the following week. We are live Saturdays on the weekend, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And we can talk to you about your car problem right here and uh, help you solve it. And that's what this radio show is about and has been about for the past 25 years. More information, if you want podcasts of this radio show or just general show information to a couple of places, cardoctorshow.com obviously has it. And you can also get podcasting there as well as interviews. And we've got a couple of more interviews coming up this weekend uh, we're going to talk about in just a minute. Also links to TuneIn, iHeart, and iTunes.com. We'll just take the podcast with you however you want to take them. Uh, from various sources and subscribe, etc. And also at Google Play. Google Play is now out there uh, distributing Car Doctor podcasts as well. And if you need me during the week, it's Ron at CarDoctorShow.com. And also keep in mind, we've got a Facebook page, Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor. You can get out there and uh, stay current with what's going on. And we'll post clips from the show as well as from time to time videos of things that I see in the shop as I'm working on the cars and things that come up that stand out that I think you might like to see that might be informative and helpful to you. And uh, I've got more than a few videos to sit and edit uh, that are sitting in edit right now that I have to get up there. And I hope to do that this weekend as um, I've got a three-day weekend. So you guys get the weekend off. I'm working. So it uh, it matters not. So uh, we'll be doing that this weekend. And uh, we look forward to that. Coming up this hour, well, let me tell you, the Memorial Day salute here on The Car Doctor continues. We, uh, we will have in a short time Jim Donnelly from Hemmings Classic Car. Jim is going to return. He's been with us many, many times before. He's covering the Indy 500 for us. This weekend, he's going to talk to us about the race. There is an antique race out there of sorts. They've put together some of, uh, I think, 125 cars out of the Indian Museum or something like that. I forget what the exact number was, but Jim's going to talk to us about that, as well as uh, some of the goings-on he's seeing out there, as well as where where has Jim Donnelly been lately. And then down around the bottom of the hour, you know, you can't keep a good man down. Uncle Steve, he was a little under the weather midweek, and uh, I spoke to him, and he said, you know what, the show's got to go on, and uh, you know, you, you could see that fire in his eye over the telephone just like uh, you did in 41 when he signed up like so many of his generation. And we're going to talk to him about uh, the Second World War, as we always do. I mean, we'll get a couple of war stories out of him, and even if it's the same ones, we enjoy hearing from him, as so many of you indicated out on the Facebook page, and uh, I thank you for your kindness in uh, regards to that. Um, real quick, before I get started, um, and maybe this will go for the segment, I think it will, uh, just sitting down during break, we was going to talk about a repair of the week, and I can do that anytime. What's going on with this Takata airbag recall? Holy cow! In the paper today, airbag recall expand, airbag recall expanded. Eight automakers had twelve million vehicles. Detroit. Eight automakers are recalling more than twelve million vehicles in the U.S. 
to replace potentially dangerous Takata airbags. Recalls for Honda, Fiat, Chrysler, Toyota, Mazda, Nissan, Subaru, Ferrari, and Mitsubishi were posted Friday by National Highway Traffic Safety. They're part of a massive expansion of Takata airbag recalls announced earlier this month. 17 automakers. How many automakers are left? 17 automakers are adding 35 million to 40 million inflators to what was already the largest auto recall in U.S. history. How crazy is that? And you just got to ask yourself what's going on here. Um, you know, it's got to make you nervous driving a car with an airbag in it, especially if it's Takata. And, uh, you know, the number of recalls. And I got to tell you, it's it's really upsetting the economy from a repair shop point of view because so many customers are going into dealers, getting the airbag recall done, and then being told they need everything from the front of the car to the back of the car. They're going out to the independent shop, finding out they don't, or they're getting it done when they don't. And it's it's really upsetting the balance of things, and it's skewing a lot of different factors that I'll cover at a later time because I don't want to take up the moment here. But um, let's just say that the recalls are costing us all a lot more than they already need to. Let's really try and sneak in a call real quick if we can. Bill, Kansas City, O2 Dodge Ram with an oil pressure problem. Bill, welcome to the car, Dr. Sir. How can I help? Hi, thanks. Uh, just a question. I'll be driving along. It's got like 187,000 miles on it. And uh, it's got the 4.7 liter engine Dodge Ram. Right. But you'll hear a ding and look down, and it'll say check gauges. And you look up, and the oil pressure is falling out, going down to zero. And then, I don't know, five minutes later, it'll it'll come back up and kind of vary back and forth like that a lot. I've I've uh, changed the oils, sending pressure sendings uh, unit. Um, I've had. Uh, a guy take the heads off to clean the the I don't know what you call them, but the oil uh, the holes that let the oil drip back down through the block down into the pan, and it's still doing it. Uh, didn't know I, I was told that the oil pump either works or it doesn't. So you know it's it doesn't sound like an oil pump, but I I can't figure out what it is. I you know my my first question is. Um, does it when it runs? You know when it runs that five minutes. All right. Are you still tooling along down the road, Bill? Do you do you back off and let Sometimes, it idle? Sometimes. Well, when it first started, I stopped. I'd I'd, I'd put it in a, into neutral and I'd coast over to the side of the road and you know thinking, oh my goodness, my I don't have any oil pressure. But it does. It didn't at that time. It didn't make any noise, any rattling, or even though I had a. a Apparently didn't have any oil pressure, according to the gauge. My engine wasn't knocking or idling or, you know, rattling or anything, making right. any and, noises. And, and that's my first question. Is this real? All right? Right. As, as always, you know, you start something out without without oil. Five minutes is forever. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. You know, so if, if this really is five minutes and you ought to time it the next time it happens... How long is it really? If this is five minutes or longer with no oil pressure and you don't hear a sound out of the engine, no lifter tap, no noise, no consequence, I don't think it's real. I really well, don't. Well, it does actually uh, It does actually have a, a tapping noise when, like, I first start the motor in the morning or so, but then after a little while it, it kind of eases up and goes away. Okay. But, but um, is, it there, is it there when I, you have this no oil pressure issue? Uh, not, not really, I guess. I, I, 
I guess I honestly couldn't tell you because my focus is more on the gauges and trying to figure out right. if it's going to come back or. So the so the next time I it travel. happens, yeah. Well, the next time it happens, let's focus on. Do you hear the noise? Even if you pull over to the side of the road somewhere safe, and just sit there for five minutes and just count the time. Okay. All right. That's. All right. I've that's, had a guy call me, and or I mean, I had a guy tell me. I pulled in. I was on my way to St. Louis, and he goes, "Oh, I see your problem." I go, "What is that?" He goes, "Well, you got a Fram oil filter." I said, "Oh, come on." Nah. Yeah. So he changed. He changed the oil, changed the filter, and I drove on into St. Louis just fine. But then going back home, it started doing it again. And then I had a guy tell me, "Oh, you've run the wrong oil in this motor. Don't ever use Ben's oil." Blah blah blah. Just everything but what it is. Right. It's it's amazing how many people can diagnose it and be wrong and they still get paid for it, and that just boggle, that just boggles my mind. Let me ask you this: When the guy pulled the valve covers off to look at the area under the heads for the oil return holes, uh huh, was there a fair amount of sludge in the motor? Yeah, he said there was uh, like three holes on each side. The middle hole was fine, but the other two were were uh, reduced in size. They were still open, but they were reduced in size. Okay. They cleaned all that out. Okay, so so it did have a reasonable amount of sludge in it. Yeah. All right, so then two questions. When you put the oil pressure sender in, and I don't think this is the issue, but I just want to touch on uh, it. When you put the oil pressure sender in, was it a Mopar piece? Was it a piece from Chrysler, or was it something aftermarket? I think it was aftermarket. I think I just stopped and got it at, like, uh Advanced auto parts or something. Okay. First thing I would do is I would look for a quality piece, preferably from Chrysler, just just to okay. el- just to eliminate the part as a possible problem. That's number one. Sure. All right. Number two. Uh huh. If this is if we want to treat this like let's assume that it's a partial low low oil pressure problem. Okay. Let's say uh-huh. let's say you uh-huh. change and you put a Chrysler piece in there and. It, it it shows lower oil pressure, but not zero. It it does it, but it does it different. All right. Number one, that tells me the advanced piece wasn't as accurate as we thought it would be. And number two, it, you still have a problem. Let's say that happens. You've got to make a decision in your head. You know where else is the sludge in the engine that was in the head? It's everywhere, right? And it's it's po- right, it's, right. it's possible you've got sludge in the oil pickup for the pump. Oh, down in the pan. Right. So, you know, here's where it's going to be. Either do you pull the pan to look at the pickup tube or or do you do something? And I, I, tell, I explain it to everybody in the shop like this. There's a way to remove sludge from an engine that will remove sludge, but you have the potential of hurting something. You just have to know what the consequences are. All right. And that is a, a quart of brake fluid in the engine and let it run for the better part of two to three hours. Just sit it idle in the shop. Break, break. How much is a squirt? Uh, no, a quart. A quart. A oh, quart, okay. yeah, a quart. Um, brake fluid is a very caustic fluid, all right? It will break down varnish and sludge and crud. And you know what? I haven't had a failure yet, but it is possible. You have. I have seen it where you can get into a scenario with, you know, causing engine damage. But it's do you want to take apart the 200,000-mile engine and try and repair the sludge in the pump pickup? Because then where else is it? And you don't know. Or do you want to do you want to try and clean it out, and then let it idle two three hours a quarter brake fluid, do a hot oil change, fresh oil, and see where you go from there. It's it's a consequence and cause and effect type of a thing. 
for you, Phil. And uh, that's what I'm sorry, Bill. And that's what you've got to think about. But um, try the switch. And then if you want more information about the brake flush, doing it that way, send me an email, ron at cardoctorshow.com. 855-560-9900. I'm back right after this. The Car Doctor, rolling along this Memorial Day weekend show as uh, we pay tribute to the troops and as well as uh, talk a little bit about what Memorial Day is and some of the traditions as we kick off the summer season. And here to help us do it once again, an old friend from way back, and I can say that now, right, Jim? And uh, we welcome back Jim Donnelly of Hemmings. How are you, sir? Doing well. How are you doing, Ron? All right. Where are you today now? Tell us. Uh, tell everybody. Well, right now I'm in downtown Indianapolis at White River State Park, and the reason I'm down here is because we came down to see uh, the parade. The reason for that being that um, uh, there was nothing taking place at the track race wise today, except a lot of autograph sessions and memorabilia sales. And the buildup is going. They have three country western concerts booked there today, led by Blake Shelton, who goes on at about uh, uh, 5:30, I believe. And the crowds are going to be huge. So given what we're going to be facing tomorrow, we just got to give ourselves a solitude break. Yeah, right. So, you know, who do you see in the race, Jim? Who's your favorite to win the Indy this year? Who are you picking? You know, I'll tell you, the that's been a, a bone of uh, discussion or, or contention all month long. And uh, the Chevrolet cars have not been as fast as the Honda Power cars. Uh, witness last um, weekend when uh, James Hinchcliffe knocked um, Joseph Newgarden off the pole with the very last run of the day in qualifications. You and I sit here and say, well, the Chevys are probably sandbagged. I personally have never been against the team Kenzie, especially when Elio Castroneves has the potential to win on the line here. You can also look at Simon Paginot, who comes into the Indy 500 with three consecutive wins. And he's looked very, very strong. Um, I still think it's going to be a titanic battle between Penske and Team Ganassi. That's my thought. There's going to be 350,000 people in that place tomorrow who probably have their own thoughts, but that's where I'm coming from yeah, right I, now. I, I can imagine. There's um, there's a legacy event going on out there this weekend, too, isn't there, Jim? Yes, that's going to be uh, first weekend of June. That's the SVRA um, uh, Invitational takes place, and that has turned into an enormous success. Uh, t- tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about that. What is that? Okay, okay. essentially what you have is a pro-am event uh, that uh, teams professional and amateur drivers in uh, Arrows. And Al Usher Jr. is going to be in that. I believe Danny Sullivan is going to be in it. Um, uh, basically a whole galaxy of names from the past that take place in this. But the unique thing is that, unlike most vintage racing events that take place on a road course, Ron, this one also involves the full two-and-a-half-mile historic oval in Indianapolis and various classes 
speedway cars that are going to be running out there at substantial speeds. And it, it was hugely successful the first year they ran it, and it's gotten better ever since. And that should be on, you know, we talk about the month of May here, May and it being the month of June, too, before everything here is set done. Really? Really? Well, what time? Now, the race tomorrow starts at what time, and what time do you think you have to get to the track? Well, I can tell you exactly what I'm going to do. Um, um, we're under the threat of storms right now in, in central Indiana. I'm probably going to get to the track by about 3 a.m. and just kind of uh, chill out until the bomb goes off and, and the gates open for the spectators at 6 o'clock. Uh, the operative words are three in number. Get here early. The police have always said that if you're in Marion County by 8 a.m., they will have you in your seat in time for race time, which tomorrow is at 12, 17 p.m. Eastern. Wow. So you're going to be, wait a minute, so the race starts around noon. You're yes. going to be at the track at 3 in the morning to get in, yes. to get in by 6 in the morning to get to your seat by noon. I'm going to get to my parking spot and and just chill out and then and then head inside the track. Um, uh, thankfully, uh, I'm friends with a gentleman who has been a spotter on on one of the teams for many years. His name is Dave Reininger. He's from down in the Metro D.C. area. Uh, he's not spotting for anyone this year. Most of the work he's been doing has been over in the uh, our series. And um, however, that said. Um, he has a house right behind the track, and he's going to let me stay uh, at his place in the park there. So um, that takes away some of the logistical problems that we're running into here because the crowds are just so, so big. Wow. Yesterday was, yesterday was Card Day, Ron, Carburation Day, and the crowd there yesterday was bigger than it had been um was bigger than it had been um, for poll day back in the 70s. Wow. They had something like 190,000 people there. Granted, a lot of them came to see the Journey concert, but still, I mean, the place had been deserted not too many years in the past. Hey, Jimmy. And, and, Jimmy, what color shirt are you going to wear tomorrow? Uh, probably blue. I'll All probably right. wear my Knox. I'll probably wear my Knoxville. Uh... Good. You know what? I'll be home watching on TV. I'll look for you in the blue shirt. And uh, once again, I appreciate your time. I'm Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. We're back right after this. Hey, welcome back. Ron Anini and the Car Doctor. You know, our next guest... Uh, there's just no easy way. Well, actually, there's always an easy way to introduce him, but it's always just such a great pleasure. And um, suffice it to say that I grew up at this man's knee um, around the holidays, and uh, he's a family relative, as all of you must know, and uh, we all love having him here. Um, There's just nothing like talking to good old Uncle Steve. How are you today, Uncle Steve? I love you. I'm fine. Love you, too. Um, How's the world treating you today? The the world is treating me very, very well. I'm the most Fortunate person in the world, I'll tell you that. You know, I, I realized, people say to me, 
you know, you were fortunate and you turned out well talking to me about me. And I say, you know what? I think I turned out as well as I did because I was raised by that World War II generation. And, you know, there, there's something about you guys. Um, do, you, do you look at yourself and do you think, and there's just no other way to say it, but do you think of yourself as the greatest generation or that, were you just, you just did the no, right thing? No, I, I think uh, the greatest generation was our parents. They went through the Depression and raised us, and uh, we never felt, uh, uh, you know, in any way that we were lacking. So uh, they sent us through schooling and so forth. Uh, so I think that our parents were the real great generation. So do you think, and that opened a doorway, That do you think that the Great Depression, had we not had the Great Depression, would we have had the ability to do what we did in the Second World War? Oh, uh, yes. I, I think it had nothing to do with the Depression. But the reason why we were able to is the morality of our people, the patriotism, uh, you know, when uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and uh, I went home to tell my father I was going to enlist, before I could say anything to him, he, he looked at me and said, Son, your country needs you. What are you going to do about it? And, you know, you had a sense of that, as so many of the generation did. Were you ever scared? I mean, did you ever sit there and say, Oh, my gosh, look what happened. We're, we're you know, we're going to lose this thing. We've got to do something. Or you just, you just, you just knew when you went. You didn't think twice about it. Yeah, just that. Uh, I, I, we were, I was not scared, no. I knew we were going to win. And uh, particularly after my first mission when I was shot down in the North Sea and I recovered, all those people were there to help me. I knew damn well that I was going to survive. You know, Tom Rich, your wingman on that mission, Ramrod to Munster, which we have up on the website. We're going to post. We're going to try and post a link to it on the Facebook page as well for anybody that wants a copy of it. Um, chronicles your adventures October 1944 when you took off on your first combat mission and you had the plane, uh, you were out over Belgium, I think it was, and the plane took a round in the oil cooler? No, no, that was in, over Holland. Okay, over Holland. It was either Z. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. And, um, you know, the, the the crash landing and the, 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 the parachute landing into the English Channel in October and um, everything that subsided. Tom Rich later went on to say in the uh, in the follow-up to that story that, you know, Stephen Ananian was one of the best pilots in the 339th, and he could have gone on to become a, a, a flight leader, but you chose to be Tom's wingman. And yes. he, he always felt great comfort to look back, and he said, you were the happiest guy to go to combat with, he said, because he'd look, he'd look around and he'd see you sitting in that P-51 smiling ear to ear, just just eager to go about your business. Um, oh, yeah. What did, you yeah. Love, what did you love about that job so much, Uncle Steve? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, uh, Tom Rich was a great guy. I, he was from, was from Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, and uh, he, he just about got out of high school. He never went to college, but he was very, very intelligent and very smart. And uh, uh, actually, he saved my life. And uh, you don't know... Uh, what it is, unless you've saved somebody's lives, I mean, uh, the accomplishment is phenomenal. It, it just it just has to leave you. How did it leave you? Did it did Did you feel like you have a debt to repay, or did you? No, I just I just when he when he did uh, when he rescued me, I went back to uh, he came to me. I was in the hospital. 
I had to go into the hospital to recover to make sure I didn't have any uh, any after effects. And he came to the hospital to take me to uh, London to get me drunk. The, the flight surgeon had told him to take me in and get me drunk. I said, no, I'm, I'm going to fly the next mission. And from now on, I'm going to fly your uh, wing, and I'm going to protect you, and I want to get you back. And sure enough, we came to back. Uh, we came back for after World War II on the same uh, boat. Uh, so we finished our tour, completed our tour together. When you when you look back at the war now, Uncle Steve, seventy plus years ago, um, you know, as a young man then, you were nineteen when you went in, and you're you're a little bit older than nineteen now. Um, are are you overwhelmed? By what you saw in the war, does the war, you know, is it does it give you a bad perspective, a good perspective? Does it bother you the way things worked out in World War II? How do you feel about things today? No, I, I didn't go through what the uh, present uh, young men are going through now. I mean, what they uh, what they're witnessing in Afghanistan and Iraq is uh, horrible. It's, these terrorists are uh, evil people and. Uh, there's only one uh, good terrorist, and that's the dead one. Yeah, well, and they used to say that about Nazis, right? Yeah, well, that was true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I had no bad feelings about uh, uh, killing. That was my job. I mean, uh, you know, we didn't, uh, we were not trained to uh, be uh, uh, lenient or comforting. We were trained to do our job, which was to kill the enemy. So when you look at the people today that, you know, take the position, and I don't want to make this political, but I'm just curious from your perspective, when you look at the people today that, you know, they're, re- they're, they're revising. Listen, there are some people saying that we enticed the Japanese to attack us at Pearl Harbor, and they're making revisionist history up. What do you, well, what do you say about things like that? Uh, I, I think that's a lot of nonsense. I mean, let's face it. Uh, what people don't know is uh, I heard about uh, the president went to uh, Tokyo and uh, to uh, Japan, and uh, what one thing that they didn't report is when we before we dropped the atom bomb, we warned the Japanese that we had an atom bomb and we were going to drop it, and they refused to surrender. The reason why we were really concerned is because. When we to invade Japan meant that that in those days the Japanese people themselves were committing suicide rather than be captured, and we knew there would be many, millions of tri- uh, lives lost. And so you know, we warned the Japanese that we're going to drop the atom bomb. They refused the warning. We dropped the bomb, and it wasn't only until the second bomb was dropped that they surrendered. Yeah, and and we forget about that, right? We we don't remember. I think we alter history rather than choose to remember it as well. Well, they don't teach it anymore, Ron. I mean, let's face it. No. Hey, listen. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, I I ran into a young man this week at the diner who was shocked to find out that we landed on the moon. And I'm not kidding. And he said he he only learned that we landed on the moon because he saw Apollo 13 on Homebox the other night. And I was like, you're kidding me. Like, I don't know what they're teaching kids in school anymore. I don't think they teach them anymore. Yeah, well, that's common core math. Hey, Uncle Steve, I'm going to pull over and take a pause. When I come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you saw as far as how they maintained the planes. And um, maybe we got one more good war story out of you. We'll talk a little bit about Stuttgart.
okay, when you sure. got shot down and you had to walk back to Paris. I'm Ron Anning in the car, Doctor. Uncle Steve is with us, and we'll both be back right after this. Welcome back. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor. We're here this hour with Uncle Steve, Stephen and Annie, and First Lieutenant Stephen and Annie and 339th Fighter Group, the boys from Falmere. Uncle Steve, you're still there. Yep. So a couple of questions. Um, and, you know, we never really talked about this. I don't know if you know the answer, but a P-51 Mustang, how many quarts of oil do you think that thing took, and how often did they change it? Each and every combat mission, so many hours? What do you think the deal was? Oh, well, uh, I really... Uh, don't remember, you know, things like that. But I can tell you one thing. Our mechanics worked at night outside in the open field in complete darkness. They just worked with flashlights because during the war, there was, uh, you know, complete blackout in the the, uh, countryside in England. Right. And uh, these fellows we used to work, service the airplanes all night long, and about uh, 3 o'clock in the morning they'd be finished and we would take off about, uh, well, they would wake us up about 4, and we'd take off about 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning on our mission. Yeah, I, 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 I guess you I could. i got to tell you one thing else. Yeah. Uh, the, the ground crews there were phenomenal. I mean, uh, they used to, as I say, not only did they work under very, very difficult conditions, but they were very competent and very able. And so, uh, in fact, uh, I have to tell you that the pilots also were trained in the uh, engine. If you you talk about my first mission, before my first mission, I had one hour flying time in a P-51. Yet I was able to survive and fly that airplane, losing oil for 45 minutes before it finally caught fire and I had to bail out. Well, and, you know, to that point, we'll touch on that. So there you are over Holland, and a round goes through, or flak went through the oil cooler line, the oil feed to the, to the supercharger it was? Yeah. And you're dropping oh, oil? Actually, I think, I think it hit the supercharger. Right. And, and, and the uh, supercharger was engaged by engine oil pressure. So I lost power. We, we were flying about 23,000 feet. And I didn't regain power. I glided down to about 7,000 feet, and that's when I had enough power to maintain uh, flight. Right. And and you ended up somehow, you know, 19 years old, you had the consciousness of mind, your first combat mission over Europe, to wiggle-waggle the plane and splash oil up out of the sump yep. and, and, and cool the cylinders down. To that's which right. Tom Rich said, are you okay? And you said, yeah, what are you doing? I'm lubricating the engine. That's right. Um, and then a couple right. of minutes later, the engine just started to destruct, and it was time to bail out, and the rest is contained well, in the story. Well, I, the other thing that, that uh, you have to remember is I bailed out in gale-force winds. That's 70-mile-an-hour winds. And that's what my problem was. Uh, right. The rough sea, and I was in the water itself for about an hour and a half before I was finally rescued. But... Uh, 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 no, what you're speaking of, you got to remember one other thing. 
I'm a New York boy. We didn't have we didn't we tra- we didn't have cars like they do today. We were traveling all over New York with the subway system. Right. So I didn't even. In fact, I had a my instrument rating before I had a driver's license. Really. So when I when I went overseas and I became an officer, uh, one of the, we had bicycles. We traveled it. Uh, one day I had to go out of town to one of the other bases. And I had to uh, take a, a jeep to do it, and uh, I went to the uh, 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 to the motor pool to get the jeep, and the fellow gives me a key and says the keeper's over there. I said, "Well, I don't know how to drive it." I said, "Could somebody drive me?" He says, "Drive it around the perimeter. You'll learn." And that's how I learned how to drive. Well, listen, I remember. I remember. Oh gosh, going back about twenty, twenty-five years ago, there was a family reunion down in central New Jersey, and you were driving up from. Where you were, I think you were living in the in in the Carolinas or Alabama at the time, and I remember asking Uncle Steve, "Do you need directions?" You said, "Heck no, I found Berlin in '45. I'm sure I can find New Jersey again. Not a problem." Okay. Um, and I never forgot that, and that's that's something I have always admired about your generation and the way you guys do things. It's that can-do attitude. Well, um, the other thing that we had is when you say can-do, uh, if I ask you now, watch your six o'clock. You know what I'm talking about, but does our do our children know about it? Do no. our grandchildren know about it? No, not at all. Because I, they don't. They have uh, a digital watches. They don't have the analog watches, well, and really. they don't know what six o'clock or three o'clock or four o'clock means. Well, you know? not not only that, Uncle Steve, but the kids today they've never had to watch their six because they've always had it. Um, well, they've always had it better. Listen, Uncle Steve, the clock's going to take me. I love you. I want to tell you how proud I am of you, as I always do and always am. And I just want to take that opportunity. I want to thank you for being with us today. And uh, the listeners really appreciate it. Thank you, Ron. And uh, I appreciate it, uh, being able to talk to your, your uh, uh, listeners. Okay. Take care. You take good care, Uncle Steve. I'm Ron Annie in the car, Doctor. We'll be back right after this. Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor here. Boy, what a fun two hours, right? I started this two hours, and I was a little nervous at the beginning of the show, if, if you couldn't tell. I just I didn't have my timing right, and my head wasn't on right, and it was just a tough week at the shop. And, you know, it, kind of it, overwhelming interviews today. You know, it's 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 just you talk to some of these people, and you look at them, and a couple of mentors there. And, um, you know, I enjoyed it, and I hope you did, too. I just want to say that. And I want to thank you for letting me, uh, you know, come into your Memorial Day weekend and talk to you as we did and do, a, do an untraditional show about Memorial Day traditions and uh, things like that. It was, a, um, it was a tough week at the shop, and I needed to do a show like this because um, um, it was a weird week at the shop. You know, I didn't talk about it. I was going to use it in one of the opening conversations about the 08 Saturn view that came in. Um, well, I have to back up. We had an 08 Saturn view that came in two weeks ago. I did an oil change and stabilizer bar links. Customer picked the car up, drove it for four days, went to work on Monday, I think it was, came home Monday night, started the car up, check engine light was on, and the car had a misfire. Huh. Gee, what happened? Brought the car in Tuesday morning. It had a P0202 injector driver fault circuit. 
went into, did some diagnostics, and it talks about problems with the PCM and problems with the injector. And this is 65,000-mile Saturn. It doesn't have a lot of miles on it. And yeah, I know miles isn't a is, is an all, be-all and end-all indicator, but the bottom line became, I said, you know, it's a little young for it to have PCM issues, and although it's possible. Looked into the relational database. There was no listings of anyone having a P0202 fault in the last five years. I said, that's kind of odd. Dug a little deeper into the car, found the mouse nest where the mouse chewed through number two wiring harness, and that was typical of my week. It was just a weird week with weird repairs. So I appreciated the ability to do a show like this and uh, kind of step outside of my normal self, and I thank you once again. Hey, I'm Ron Anning, the car doctor. I enjoyed each and every minute today, and I'm reminding you, good mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya. See ya.